So I was thinking, what in the world is Memorial Day weekend? And, and uh, come to find out, it's a pretty, pretty recent holiday. Uh, in 1968, Congress passed the Uniform Monday Holiday Act, where they designated the last Monday of, uh, of May as Memorial Day. But originally, before that, it was actually called Decoration Day. And it doesn't mean that you put out doilies and stuff. But instead, Decoration Day was that you go to the graves of fallen Confederate and Union soldiers after the Civil War, and you go decorate their graves. And that happened for a number of years until World War I broke out. And then, obviously, uh, World War I meant that the fallen soldiers there were enveloped into Decoration Day, followed by World War II in Korea and Vietnam. So it actually uh, is just an interesting holiday because it really is a time for us to remember those who have died in war. And it's important, too, because the families of those left behind were the ones who ensured or were attempting to ensure that their family members would not be forgotten. And the reality is we all, as, a, as human beings, we're forgetful people. And you may disagree with that, but think about it. How many birthdays you forgot? Anniversaries. There's times even where we forget to thank people. And so we have our phones and we set reminders for basic things. Get milk. Even though the whole point of you going to the store is to get milk, but you may come back with a bag of Skittles instead. It's just how that works. <laughs> or we can post, uh, we can have post-it notes and we can put them all over the place just to remind ourselves. But the reality is this, is we are forgetful people. And, it take, and we need to be reminded from time to time to remember the things that are most important. And that's why on this Memorial Day, it was good for us to actually look at this scripture, this uh, section of scripture that talks about the significance of being reminded of the most important thing in your life, namely the gospel. And so we are going to read this together. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to take it out. The ESV is preferable. I understand that you may have other versions. We'll pray for you. If you do have a, a phone or a tablet or you brought your personal computer with you or whatever, I encourage you to break that out and uh, follow along with us. 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, 
I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. So, Father, I know because you have preserved until this moment the book of Second Peter for us that it is your desire that we never forget the gospel. It was on the Apostle Peter's heart. That's why he wrote this. And so I pray in the time that we have together, gathering as your church, that you would be pleased to teach us all that we should know, that you'd be pleased to grant us clarity of thought, that you'd be pleased to grant us a willing heart and spirit. For God, the foundation of all of our obedience is the gospel of the glorious grace that is in Jesus Christ. And so for that purpose, Lord, would you help us to sort out any kind of confusion and help us to have clarity about these issues. And in so doing, Lord, we'll have every reason to give you thanks. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Peter is the author. And he writes this to the, those whom he is addressing, that this letter is to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And I think it's interesting that Peter is writing to the Christians, and he says that they have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, meaning Christians are recipients of a God-given faith. And the kind of faith that we have been given, that we have come into possession of, that we have obtained, is a similar, if not uh, in our minds we have to understand this, it's, it's similar and actually the same as the apostles' faith. But that does not mean that we are equal to the apostles, but that we share like them in the faith. And those who have received or obtained this faith, which is given us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he also prays. And this is what the apostle Peter prays. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We don't see this in English, but the pronoun you here is actually plural. And if we lived in the South, we would say, y'all. And so think of it like that. May grace and peace be multiplied to y'all collectively, to each of us individually, but really the emphasis is on us corporately. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. And what's interesting is many of us associate grace with that initiatory kind of salvation thing. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And so we tend to see grace always through the lens of the thing by which salvation comes. And if that's true in this, then why in the world is Peter praying that grace may be multiplied. Does that mean somehow that we have a little bit of salvation and we got to get more and more of it? No. It's because God's grace of salvation is not the only kind of grace that God gives. God also gives us the grace of sanctification, which is the process of how we grow as Christians in conformity to the likeness of Jesus. And so it's this kind of grace that Peter is praying for us to have multiplied in our lives. Peter wants us to grow in Christ's likeness and to have that kind of growth multiplied. And so he's praying. 
I want that for you. But he also wants peace. He wants peace to be multiplied in our lives. And we know Romans 5.1 where it talks about that we have been justified by grace and we have peace with God. Now, does that mean that Peter's praying that the peace of God would kind of be multiplied because you have a little bit here and a little bit there, but you really need to get more and more and more of it? No. You have fullness of peace with God. There's no more enmity, no more strife. You are not enemies with God anymore. You have peace with God. And yet at the same time, Peter's praying that there will be a multiplication of peace because peace can also be thought of as harmony or as order. And so Peter is praying that our lives would experience the kind of multiplication of order and harmony that we kind of get our lives in order so that our lives would look and reflect more and more like Jesus' life. So the way in which we think, the way in which we talk, the way in which we live, the words we choose to use, all of these things would be in conformity to the person of Jesus. And so he's praying for this multiplication of both grace and peace. But I want to point out the fact that this multiplication comes from a source. He says that grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And that's a preposition that could also be rendered by or through. So it's in the knowledge of God or by the knowledge of God or through the knowledge of God, there is a multiplication of grace and peace, which is significant because knowledge is something, I don't know why we do this, but we as Christians and especially in our subculture, we love to pit knowledge against love. And we love quoting that Corinthians passage where knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And brothers, we ought not to, and sisters, we, we, we ought not to make enemies of friends. These two things go together. Knowledge is not the antithesis or the opposite of love. Instead, remember what Jesus said, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind. So we remember that we have to love God with our minds. And that's why this word knowledge that is here is where we get the English word epistemology. In the world of philosophy, it's the idea of knowledge. It's actually the cognition. It's the thinking. It's the apprehending with the mind. And it's through the apprehending with the mind. It's through the cognition, knowing God, that multiplication of grace and peace comes. And so, brothers and sisters, there's no reason for us to say, I don't want to know God better with my mind because that's just a waste of time. That's going to make me prideful and arrogant. No, it can do that just like love can. But we have to see knowledge as something that God is pleased to use in order to multiply the grace and peace in our lives. And so, so do not neglect the life of your mind. And that fits with the whole context of 2 Peter. When you turn to chapter 3, what you see is Peter is really trying to emphasize the role that knowledge plays. And we pick it up in verse 15. And what Peter is going to do is he's going to identify the Apostle Paul and the writings of the Apostle Paul. And he's going to say, look, you have to understand that Scripture, including the Apostle Paul's writings, these are important for us. He says this in verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom, wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. There are some things in them, referring to Paul's letters, 
that are hard to understand. I don't know about you, but I've read the Apostle Paul's letters, and there's times where I'm just scratching my head going, huh? Wait, what? It's hard to understand. Which the ignorant and unstable, and by the way, ignorant is the opposite of those who have knowledge. It's absent of knowledge. These people twist the scriptures to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. In other words, the apostle Peter is saying, look, I'm telling you beforehand, I'm, get, I'm shooting you straight here. Scripture is difficult to understand. It's hard. And there are people who are ignorant, which means they lack knowledge, who will take Scripture and they twist it. And they're going to misinterpret it, misapply it, and they're going to twist it to their own destruction. But I'm warning you ahead of time that these things are so, so you better not be counted as one of those people. In other words, don't be twisting Scripture. And don't be ignorant. Instead, verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what do we do with the Bible when the Bible tells us the Bible's hard to read? Well, in our culture, we are addicted to things which are easy, simple, and quick. So when you tell somebody you should read the Bible, and by the way, it's going to be really difficult, they go, then why should I do it? Uh, I want easy stuff. Give me easy. No, we shouldn't give in to not reading the Bible. It's hard. We know people are going to twist Scripture. But we have to do the hard work of doing what Peter says. We need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the question is, how do you grow in grace? Well, it's said in chapter 1, verse 2, that grace is multiplied to you through knowledge. So if you want to grow in grace and obey the command to grow, you have to, you have to grow in knowledge. But he also said in chapter 3, verse 18, that we should grow in knowledge. And so how in the world do you do that? Well, the whole section here is talking about Scripture. And so what I would say is it's pretty simple that the Apostle Peter is saying you need to grow in grace, which comes through knowing God, and knowing God comes through this book. So read this book as difficult as it may be and as wrought with challenges as it may have with people misinterpreting it, but you need to get in this book and you need to be reading it so you can know God and by knowing God that grace and peace will be multiplied to you. I love that. That is so helpful because it reminds us of what Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 3, about how knowledge is so significant and so essential that Jesus prays, and this is eternal life, that they, the Christians, y'all, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And again, the word know is no. It's not experiential knowledge. It's cognitive knowledge. That's eternal life. And then Jesus goes on to pray in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
And so you see that the word of God, the scriptures, are truth. By it we gain knowledge. Through knowledge we have grace and peace multiplied. Here's the thing, though. The idea of forgetting something that Apostle Peter's talking about in chapter 1, it presupposes you know something. Let me put it differently. You can't forget what you do not know. You have to know in order to forget. And the Apostle Peter is saying in verse 12, look, I want to remind you. In verse 13 he says, I'm trying to stir you up by way of reminder. Which is to say, Peter knows that these people already know this, but he's reminding them anyway. Because we are so forgetful. So look at what Peter's doing. And what we're going to do is this is I'm going to take you through this text, but we're going to do it in a way that you probably are not prepared for. This threw people for a loop in the first two services. We're going to start from the bottom, and I'm going to build from the bottom upward. Once we reach the top, then we'll come back down. (laughs) All right. I don't know what to do with your response (laughs) or lack thereof. But let's look at verse 12. Look. The Apostle Peter says, therefore, I intend always, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Now, what are these qualities? We'll get to that in a minute. But he says, though you know them. So wait, so why remind them if they already know them? Do you see that? Is he crazy? Is he confused? They already know it. Why remind them of it? Because once you know something, you're prone to forget it. And he says, you are established in the truth that, they, that you have. I think it's right, as long as I'm in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder. By way of reminder. Got to remind you so you don't forget what you know. Now, what are these qualities that he wants these folks, the Christians, us, y'all, to remember? Well, whatever they are, they keep you from falling. Look at this in verse 10. The last half. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. If you practice these qualities, whatever those qualities are, you will never fall. Hmm. Now we go to verse 9. If you don't have these qualities, look at this. If these qualities are yours, excuse me, verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. So if you lack these qualities, you are blind. And then we jump to verse 8, and he says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me put it together simply like this. The Apostle Peter says, you need to remember this stuff because it will keep you, they will keep you from falling. And if you remember these things, you won't be blind. And if you remember these things, you will be fruitful and productive or effective in your knowledge of God. I don't know about you, but do you see the incentive? How many of us want to wake up in our knowledge of God and go, man, what I really want is to fall and be completely blind and to be unfruitful and totally ineffective. That's my goal. None of us are like that. 
And so what the Apostle Peter says is, look, you must be reminded of these qualities to keep you from falling and becoming blind so that you won't be ineffective and unfruitful. To put it positively, if you want to be productive, you want to be fruitful, you want to be effective in your knowledge of God, then you need to remember these qualities. You've got to. So what are these qualities? Hang on to that thought. Here's the reality. You and I are conditioned by our culture to want quick fixes. So we want results quickly, right? You don't want to work out for a year and eat right. You want to take a pill so that way in three weeks when you go on the boat, you'll have the body you always dreamed of. (laughs) We want solutions immediately. You were on the treadmill for 20 minutes. You gained a pound and a half. And you're going, I can't believe this. (laughs) Or we want answers promptly. That's the way we are. So when you hear that remembering these qualities will keep you from falling, they will keep you from becoming blind, and they will keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful, you're thinking to yourself, because I know... You're thinking, just give me the qualities already. Let's get on with this. Give me the list. I'll be on my merry way and get out of your hair and we'll end church early. Well, I have bad news. Peter doesn't do that in this text, so neither will I. Instead, when you see the qualities, and I'll give it away, they're contained in verses 5 through 7. When you see the list of these qualities, you are struck by the first four words, which introduces them. And here are, here's the first four words. For this very reason. And then he lists the qualities, which tells us. The qualities are the result of something, not the cause of them. The list of qualities is a result of whatever the answer is to the question, what does he mean by for this very reason? What is the reason he has in mind? And to put it completely plain, the foundation to these qualities that we're to remember It's the gospel. It's absolutely the gospel. So where is that contained? Verse 3 and 4. We read, his divine power, and in the New Testament, his divine power is most often associated with the work of the Holy Spirit. So his divine power, or the work of the Holy Spirit, has granted to us All things that pertain to life and godliness. Which means you and I have everything that we need in order to live a godly life. You have access to the treasury of everything that you need that pertains to life and godliness. And that is through the Holy Spirit. Okay. I don't want to make make anyone confused. Everything is yours. In the Holy Spirit. 
But then you look at how that comes to us. Look at the next preposition. That all these things that pertain to life and godliness are granted to us through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Do you see it? That's why we cannot ignore the knowledge of God. Because the things which pertain to life and godliness come to us through the knowledge of God. And so God grants us these things, all the things. And then there's a second grant to the first grant. Verse 4. By which, or by this first grant, through the Holy Spirit to give us all things that pertain to life and godliness, he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Now, let me ask you this question. What are we supposed to do with promises? Believe them. None of us make promises to our children or to our neighbors or friends or spouses or whatever. None of us make promises to people. And in our minds we're thinking, I really hope they don't take my word on this. No, we make promises because we want the people to whom we make these promises trust and believe the promises. So what do we do with the great precious promises of God? Believe them. Now, here's the amazing thing, is that when we think about the great and precious promises of God that we are to believe, the Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. All the great and all the precious promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. That is why the Apostle Paul says, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. That's why we end our prayers within the name of Jesus. Because we know that it is Jesus who is the fulfillment and the yes answer to every promise that God has ever made. And so, since promises are meant to be believed, then what we can easily say is, God intends for you and I to believe in Jesus. We need to believe in Jesus. Now, what happens if we were to believe in Jesus? What happens if we were to believe in the great and precious promises of God? We keep going in verse 4. We see the next little two-word phrase is so that, which tells you the answer or the product or the result of believing. It says, so that through them, through Christ, believing in Christ, or through believing in the promises of God, you may become partakers of the divine nature. So the first thing that we experience as we believe in Jesus is that we become partakers of the divine nature. Now, the Mormons get this dead wrong because they'll use this verse to describe deification, where we go from mere human beings to gods. It's not true. Instead, what he's referring to is the kind of life that is essential to being God. In other words, when you believe the very great and precious promises of God, which is Jesus Christ, you are granted the opportunity and also the experience of partaking of everlasting, incorruptible life. So... The inverse is also true. 
If you receive and you become a partaker of the divine nature, which is the incorruptible, everlasting life that God has, then the next part is also true that you have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. In other words, we all have a sin nature, and from that sin nature comes sinful desires, and our sin nature and the sin desires that we have are having an effect on us, namely we are being corrupted, we are sinning our brains out, and it is resulting in death. But if you believe in Jesus, you will escape that corruption. You will escape the sin nature and the effects of sin. And the grand promise of them all is that you will not die. Now, this is significant. This is gospel. Jesus is God in human flesh. Born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. What's the significance of the fact that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit? It means that Jesus is born without a sin nature. And having no sin nature, it means that Jesus could do in his life what you and I cannot do in ours. Namely, be sinless and completely obedient and obey the law of God in every way. But Jesus did that for us. And although he was not deserving of death, Jesus joyfully and willingly laid down his life by being crucified on a Roman cross to become a sacrifice to satisfy and atone for the wrath of God. And so now Jesus offers anyone the opportunity to exchange his perfect sinless life for our sinful imperfect life so that we exchange our corruption for his incorruptible life. Now we know that what Jesus did in his life and his death by crucifixion is sufficient to forgive us of our sins. And we know that because Jesus rose from the dead. And think of it like when you write a check. I know many young people and stuff, we don't write checks anymore, right? You just put your phone out there and pay for stuff. But when you write a check, you're giving it, and it's a promissory note. And then you have to sit back and wait for the bank to cash it. And once it's been cashed and the check has been cleared, then you know it's been paid. So how do we know that our debt for sin has truly been paid? Well, the check is cleared. The deposit is in the bank. The grave is empty. Jesus is risen. So if you know that you are sinful, you feel the weight of your guilt, you understand that you want to do your best, but your best is never what you think it should be. You understand that you are not interested in God, that you have rebelled against him, then you need to be forgiven of your sins. And the only way to be forgiven of your sins is by trusting the very great and precious promises of God. The promise is if you repent and believe the gospel, you will have life. In other words, you simply trust that Jesus' sinless life, atoning death, and resurrection was enough. 
You turn from your sin and you turn from your own efforts to justify yourself before a holy God. And instead you thrust yourself upon the mercy of God and appeal to Jesus to save you. That is the gospel. And that is what we're to do with the gospel, to repent and believe it. And so then Peter says, for this very reason. In other words, for the reason of the gospel, because of the gospel, because of the sinless life of Christ, because of the crucifixion of Christ, because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of forgiveness of sins, because of everlasting life, and because we can escape the wrath of God, make every effort, he says, to supplement your faith with virtue, Virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. You see, brothers and sisters, there's nothing special about this list. If you divorce the gospel, verses 2 through 4, from the list of the qualities that we should do in verses 5 through 7, what we're in effect doing is we're telling people what they should do without reminding them of what Christ has done. And so we divorce the gospel obedience from the gospel itself. Now, why that matters is simply this. The list itself, the way that Peter introduces it, is he wants us to remember that these qualities flow from the gospel. And so to pursue these qualities divorced from the gospel is to not understand what Peter's talking about. Because Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith. And I think what happens is for we as Christians, we get so inundated with the commands of the New Testament, do this, do this, do this, do this, that sometimes we allow it in our minds, these commands are no longer supplements, they become the substitutes for the gospel. But you do realize that whenever you take a New Testament letter and you open it up, the first half of the book is always what God has done in Christ. And built upon that is the second half of the book is, then in light of that, you go and do this. So if we divorce the done of the gospel from the do of the commands, we are misleading people. We do not supplement or we do not substitute obedience for the faith of the gospel. We supplement it. Now, each of these qualities, remember Peter says, these qualities will keep you from falling. These qualities will keep you from becoming blind. These qualities will make you effective and fruitful in your faith. So why shouldn't we focus on these qualities? And I simply say, we don't focus on the qualities in isolation from the gospel. But we understand these qualities because they are the result of the gospel. You see, when we read a list like this, like, you know, the fruits of the spirit or whatever, like do this, do this, we tend to go home and we make a little list. I'm going to do all this stuff. And then we try to wake up the next morning and begin to apply it and begin to live it. And one of two things ends up happening to us. First, you actually find yourself being pretty successful at it. You're like, oh, I'm doing pretty good. 
I'm being loving and like affectionate and I'm self-control. I didn't eat that donut like I wanted to. And pretty soon you'll see the less self-controlled people whooping on those donuts and you're going, you know what I'm talking about. You giggle because you're like, oh yeah, that's me. And we start looking down our nose at the people around us and going, man, I'm so glad I got this figured out. Look at them, pigs. (laughs) You never say it though, right? Because you're self-controlled. But you're looking around going, wow, when are they going to get it together? That's one result that can happen when you just focus on the do's. Another result that can happen is this. You will fail gloriously. You wake up in the morning, I got this list of stuff I'm going to do, and it's going to be fantastic, and I'm going to be a changed person. I'm going to transform the world. Lunchtime comes around, you're like, Lord, I'm, I'm just the worst. I don't know what happened today. Uh, I flipped three people off on the road. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what's going on. And when you fail miserably, you will feel the full weight of your failure, and you will be crushed by it. You've been there before? And so you will conclude, man, this is a waste of time. There's no point in doing this because I'm just a failure. I'm not going to be able to do it anyway. But I have to tell you, brothers and sisters, there's a third option. It's the way of the gospel. You see, the way of the gospel is completely other. We're told in Romans 1 that the gospel is the power for salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew, then to the Gentile. But then if you remember verse 17, that same gospel, it is for faith, by faith, meaning the gospel is the power not only for salvation, but the gospel is also the power of sanctification. And we as Christians cannot forget the gospel because if we forget the gospel, we are ignoring the power that produces obedience. So how we center our lives on the gospel is something like this. When you are tempted to think the faith that you have is somehow yours, you've manufactured it, you're kind of doing a good job, you're being faithful uh, compared to the people around you, you need to remember the gospel. Remember that the faith you have, you obtained by the grace of God. God gave it to you. You didn't earn it. Remember that grace and peace are multiplied to you. They are not multiplied by you. Remember the gospel, that it is God's divine power in the work of the Holy Spirit to grant to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. You don't achieve a godly life. Remember the gospel, that God has granted to you his great and precious promises, that is Christ. You do not merit Christ. And remember the gospel, that the faith you have obtained The work of the Holy Spirit in Christ redeeming you, that frees you from sin and the wrath of God, the only thing you've ever contributed to that salvation is the sin from which you need to be forgiven. As Jerry Bridges once said, even our tears of repentance need to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. So remember 
that God is the author and the perfecter of our faith. God is at work. Now, I love this because I'm going to piece some verses together for you. Philippians 1. Where the Apostle Paul says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a promise. And what do we do with promises? Believe them. So if God has begun a work in you, God has promised to bring it to completion. Awesome. How does that work? Do we just sit around as kind of like idle, just like, all right, God, do your work. (laughs) No, you have to realize the Christian life is not a life where you are merely a conduit. But you are an actual object and instrument of God's grace. A conduit is something you lay in the ground and you bury it and you just let stuff go in and out of it. But an instrument implies action. So here's some action. Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Get to work. And when you read something like that, you're like, well, okay, I'm going to work out my salvation. With fear and trembling. Oh, oh. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Verse 13. The very first word of verse 13 is this. For. Meaning because. Meaning this is the reason why you should work out your own salvation. It's because God is at work in you. So which is it? Do I work or is God working? Yes. Emphatically, yes. So we need to be working because God is at work in our working. And if you don't work, then God won't work and you'll miss out on the work. So work out your faith because God is at work. And when God is working, there is going to be sanctification. For God has promised what he began. He will bring it to completion. There is such beauty in this. That is why Peter says, verse 5, for this reason, because of the gospel, make every effort. Make every effort. You see, the gospel is not the opposite of effort, it's the opposite of earning. You don't earn any of this, but there is certainly an effort. And the effort we have to contribute is a grace-fueled, gospel-centered effort that I will work out my faith with fear and trembling. I will work hard, make every effort to become the kind of person God wants me to become because God has lavished his grace upon me and has promised no merit of my own that he gave me the Holy Spirit to empower me to give, to get all that I need that pertains to life and godliness. God began something. He's going to see it to completion. I'm waking up the next day. I'm pursuing obedience because Jesus gave me his grace. So when you fail gloriously, you don't have to wonder as you're driving in your car, did I really just do that? Oh, God, don't kill me. Instead, you can simply say, Lord, you got a lot of sanctifying to do. 
Thank you for your grace. God, thank you that I am a wicked sinner and I realize it and I repent of it. And then the next person that cuts you off, practice self-control because God just gave you his grace. Do you see how that works? And the moment you begin to look at people around you, look at you, you slob eating all those donuts. Have some self-control. Instead, you can say, Lord, in the throes of my lack of self-control, that's precisely when you came to rescue me. Apart from your grace and mercy, I'm nothing. That's gospel. That's why we can't graduate from the gospel, brothers and sisters. I know of too many Christians that are like, oh, you know, the gospel, that's just what you have when you first get saved. And I say, no, 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 no. It is what you have, but the apostle Peter says in verse 12, I know you know it and I know you have been established in it, but I'm still going to remind you, do not forget the gospel. For from it flows all of our obedience. All right, now I've done that and I have... No minutes left (laughs) to do the last part. So I'm going to do it quickly. (laughs) Starting in verse 8, 9, 10, and 11, we'll see a benefit, a motivation, and some practical things. Look at this in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which means, brothers and sisters, you can know cognitively a lot of stuff and still be unfruitful. That's the thing that the Bible speaks against. For Satan himself is one who knows much of God and is not saved. So don't be like that. Instead, be filled with cognitive knowledge of God and allow that to be the thing that causes grace and peace to multiply. Now, how do we get that? The Bible. Yes, but the Bible's hard to understand. I know. And the grace of God is available to you to help you understand it. That's why we never read the Bible in isolation. Why? Because we're wicked and we're selfish and we're going to see whatever we want to see in this book. So we read it in community going, I think I says this. And people go, you may think that, but it doesn't say that. Oh, that's love there. Mm, That's love. (laughs) So if you want to be fruitful, if you want to be effective in your knowledge of God, then make every effort to be pursuing these qualities, grace-fueled, gospel-centered effort. All right, last one. Oh, no, two more. Sorry. Motivation. (laughs) Verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. If you lack these qualities, you're blind. So what is the remedy? Well, the remedy is in the diagnosis, really. The diagnosis is you're blind and and you lack these things because you have forgotten that he has cleansed you from your former sins. Do you see that? You forgot the gospel, so now you're blind. Don't be blind. Remember the gospel. Last one. The motivation. Verse 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers, concluding, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. How? 
For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you diligently pursue making every effort to practice these things, you will never fall. And when you never fall, you will be confident and your faith will be confirmed and you get the kingdom. Does that mean you can lose your salvation? No. Because God said, what I started, I'm bringing to completion. So 1 John 2.19 shed some light on this. Talking about some people who were quote-unquote Christians, they went out from us, from the church, but they were not of us. How do we know they weren't of us? Because if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Here's the, the truth. Those who are truly called of God stay with God and his people. That's the truth. So we as a church are going to preach the gospel. We're going to pray the gospel. We're going to share gospel-centered love. And we're going to persevere together in gospel-centered steadfastness with one another. And we're not going to forget the gospel. So, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is for us everything that we need God, thank you that he came to rescue us lowly sinners from our own peril, from underneath the weight of your wrath. Thank you that Jesus lived a sinless life, that he was crucified, that he is risen. Thank you that he ascended to the right hand of the Father and is indeed in this moment interceding for us and has granted us the Holy Spirit who gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness so that by your power, Because of your grace, we can pursue holiness and we can make every effort to supplement our faith with obedience. So God, thank you for this grace-fueled, gospel-centered motivation. May we be a church that though we know the gospel and though we are established in the gospel, may we be a people who never forget the gospel. For it is the glorious, glorious, great news, a great joy for all the people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.